0: Hello Christians, look at the person next to you, not back to me, not back to the person next to you, not back to me. Chances are that person is a Christian just like you, but sadly, here in your office you're surrounded by non-Christians. What are you going to say to them? Don't answer that. Look down, back up. Where are you? You're at your small group. Again, surrounded by Christians just like you, but not everyone is just like you, are they? Don't you wish you could talk to them like you talk to them? What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's two tickets to that church thing that you love. Look again. The tickets are now salt and light, which is what you should be to your non-Christian friends. Anything is possible with Lord Spice Body Wash. It will not make you not smell like a non-Christian. I'm on a donkey. There you go. Yeah. It will not make you not smell like a non-Christian. I don't even know what that means. I tried to parse it down. Uh, So we're talking about uh, oikos. Oikos is a Greek word uh, that was used commonly back during the time of Christ, the early church. Oikos. Say it with me. Oikos. Okay, so you're speaking Greek. That's good. So oikos is a word that was used back during the time of Christ in the early church. It uh, It was an interesting word, and we've been talking about that now. We've been mentioning that modern research says that the average American has anywhere between 8 to 15 individuals with whom they have loving, caring, and influential relationships. So, you know, during this series we've been talking about that, maybe some of you have been like, you know, maybe you can count 25 or 30, you're a little above average, maybe a few of you are having a hard time counting with 5 or 6, but on average, you know, anywhere between 8 to 15 people that we have in our relational world with whom we have loving, caring, and influential relationships. Um, We call it a lot of things these days, but back then, the Greeks would call that an oikos. An oikos. Now, the word oikos was used in several ways back then. Sometimes the word was used to describe a physical dwelling. uh, We might call it a house or a household, but it was also used to describe a circle of relationships. And when we find this word oikos in the New Testament, we know whether it's referring to two-by-fours and shingles on the house or, or people based on the context. We're, we're focusing on this second one, this idea that every one of us have a circle of relationships, a relational world and an extended household, if you will. Now, back then, when you would say the word oikos, they often thought of household a little differently than we do today. Because when we use the word household today, if I was to ask you, how many people are in your household or your oikos, you might be tempted to say, well, just think of the people who live under your roof. But back then they thought a little bigger than that, a little more relationally than that. And they might say, well, there's the people who live in my house, two, three, sometimes four generations of relatives who lived in the same house. You might refer to some some servants that you had that that lived in your house and you were very close to them, so they were part of your oikos. It might include some um, relatives who lived nearby. It might include a neighbor, someone you work with, a friend, But people with whom you have loving, caring, influential relationships. So today, when we talk about the concept of an oikos, it might include some people that live in in your home with you. It might uh, include someone who lives next door to you or across town, but you have a close relationship with them. It could include someone you work with. It could include someone you go to school with, someone that you're on a team with. But these are people, this is your oikos, people that God has strategically placed in your world. And he's placed them there for a reason. And part of the reason that we're talking about the oikos in church is because it's, it's very significant. Studies tell us that 90% of people who come to Christ do so through an oikos type of relationship. And when you begin to look in the New Testament, you see that all over the place. Uh, during this series, I've given you several examples of that. I was reading Mark chapter 2 this week, and, and uh, Jesus is walking along one day, and he's, he's calling some men to be his disciples and uh, one of those people that he called was a guy named Levi in Mark 2 14 it says this now as Jesus is walking along he saw Levi son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth because that's what he was he was a tax collector and Jesus saw him and he says to him follow me and Levi got up and he began to follow him now we see this happen several times he's called some fishermen and some others just you know walking along hey come follow me and God had prepared their hearts to do that to be a disciple and so they would begin to follow him and this guy Levi begins to follow Jesus and a little bit later in fact some believe it was probably that day or that evening uh, they have a little dinner party at Levi's house and it said while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house now Who would Levi have over to his house for dinner? He's just begun to follow Christ. It says there were many tax collectors and sinners, which is just kind of a big, broad category, and they were all there eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the first thing that this guy does is he goes out, and uh, he just gets his friends, the people he's connected to, his oikos, because he's just met Jesus, and he wants them to meet Jesus as well. Now, when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, uh, saw Jesus with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is a good question because they believed that Jesus should have been focused on the righteous people, on the religious people, on the, the, the spiritual leader people, on the people who had it all together. And this was always kind of a, a, a source of contention between them. But Jesus just lays it out very clear. He says, on hearing this, he said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So he calls this guy Levi, and immediately he goes out and he gets some people in his oikos because he wants to introduce them to Jesus. It's that simple, and that's how 90% of people come to Christ. That, Christ, that's a path that they take. It could be a parent, a relative, a close friend. It's the most natural form of evangelism, when you think about it. So we've been talking about that in this series. And today, as we kind of wrap it up, I want to I talk about three misconceptions or three myths that people often believe when it comes to oikos evangelism. And uh, I've heard some of this over the years as I've talked about it and thought about it and uh, prayed about it. And I want to review a few of those with you today. And so here's the first myth I want to talk about. It's a myth where we convince ourselves that we have the potential to influence the people in our oikos. Now, that's a myth, and that may seem a little strange to say that, because you're probably thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. But God, over the last few weeks, has really brought out to me how this myth can really hurt us. And by it, what I mean is that we convince ourselves, if I want to, I could influence the people in my oikos. When, in fact, it's really a matter of how we influence our oikos, not if we influence our oikos. And one of the things that brought this out to me was A few weeks ago, uh, it was the middle of the day, I think it was a Tuesday, I was up in my office and uh, I have some windows that look north, we have a north parking lot up there and um, I was just sitting at my desk working and I looked out my window and I saw a car that had pulled in that parking lot and was just sitting there and there were some people inside, there were some... uh, some teenagers, maybe some college-age people inside. I just kind of see them in there, but I didn't think anything of it. It's just a car up there. And so I was working a little bit more, and I looked, and noticed they were still there. And, and uh, pretty soon I saw three, you know, like, college-age students come walking up and walk up to the car. And as they walked up, I saw a guy, you know, get something out of his pocket and hand it through the window. And I saw the guy in the car wrestling around, and I thought to myself, I wonder what they're doing. And... Uh, and then I thought, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I think I know what they're doing. Uh, what, what, what should I do? So I'm looking down there and I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, man. This is a church church. And that's our parking lot. We have, we have grade school kids here tonight. Uh, we have high schoolers, junior highers here tomorrow. We want, I don't want that kind of stuff going down in my church parking lot, but I'm kind of looking there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, may, maybe I should do something. I, 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 could, I could go down there, you know. Um, I could say something. I could call 911. But as I'm, as I'm looking down there, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe I should stay out of it. I mean, you know, I could go down there and what if they get mad or what if they're bigger than me or they have more upper body strength than me or they, you know, they got a car and I don't, and I'm just thinking, and then maybe it's not what it looks like. Maybe I I shouldn't, and and I'm thinking to myself as I look down there, I have, and this is what crossed my mind, I have um, the potential to influence what's going on down there, and then it struck me. Oh, I'm going to influence what happens down there no matter what I do, right? Because I'm now involved in that situation. I can see what's going on. If I go down and do something, I'm going to influence it, but if I do nothing, I still influence what's happening in the parking lot of our church, don't I? Because I could see what's going on. So I looked around me, and I just happened to have a video camera sitting on my desk at the time, and I thought, I know what I'll do. So I ran downstairs, and I ran up to the corner, and I stuck a camera up in the air, and I turned it on. I had the lens cap on, so I'm, like, trying to get the lens cap off, and I'm, well, just about that time, one of the guys turns around and sees me, and, I mean, it was like the cockroaches when the light comes on. I mean, the three people, like, they're they're trying to walk out of there, and the people in the car, they got to drive past, and I got the camera, and they got to drive right past it. Got the license plate, the make, the model, the whole thing. It was great. And they just ran down. I was like, yeah, that's right. And don't ever come back here. So (laughs) I got my little camera. See, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. We convince ourselves, well, I, you know, I don't have to do anything today. You know, maybe I can influence the situation later. This whole idea of it's a matter of how, not if, when it comes to influence relates to our lives more than we know. I was thinking about that over the, the, the next couple of days and thinking how it's true of every meaningful relationship that you have. I, think about it for those of you who are dads. Think about it, you've had a long day at work and you're coming home and maybe this thought has crossed your mind. You're pulling in the driveway and you think to yourself, I've got a wife in the house, maybe I've got some kids in the house and uh, I have the potential uh, to go into my house after work today and influence them. Let's see That's a lie that we can tell ourselves. It's a lie because what we can do is sometimes we can think, man, it's been a long day and I'm tired and I just want to sit down and I don't really have time to influence them today. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Maybe the next day. (laughs) But that's a lie we tell ourselves because we will influence those people no matter what we do. Isn't that true? Whether we mean to or or whether we don't. And if we decide, I'm going to go in and influence them and love them, then that's great. That's what you do. But if you decide to go in and just keep yourself and sit on the couch and do nothing, you understand you're still influencing those people. Because that's how it is with the people we love. Whenever we're around them, whatever we do, even if we do nothing, it influences them. It impacts them. And I say that because there's a myth, there's a lie that we convince ourselves. And we miss so many opportunities to influence people for Christ. You're at school, you're sitting next to a friend in class, you think, I could influence them for Christ today, but uh, I just, I'm, I'm so, I gotta get this thing done. You realize, though, that you will influence them. The question isn't, will you? It's just, how will you? At work, with that person you know? At church, that person you're sitting next to right now? You will influence them. We will influence our oikos no matter what we do. Because our actions and our words mean something to them, and they're paying attention to us more than we realize. The question is not, will we influence the people around us? The only question is, how will we influence them? That's it. In Matthew chapter 5, in fact, Jesus is talking about this very idea about you and I as Christians, and the power we have to influence. He says this, he gives us two analogies. He says, look at the passage, he says, you are the what? There's the first one. He goes, think of, you are salt, all right? You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it useful again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. And then he wants to drive this home, so he gives us another one. He says, you are the what? You are the light. So you're salt and you are light. You're the light of the world. You're like a city on a mountain glowing in the night for all to see. Now, don't hide your light under a basket. Instead, put it on a stand and let it shine for all. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, this, this passage is about influence, it's about the potential that you and I have to influence the people around us. He gives us two examples salt in light. So thinking about that salt and and what what does he mean by that? And and back then they would have understood very clearly what he was talking about. And we still see that today. In fact, I was reading an article about a week ago about cooking with salt I don't know why I was bored and it was in this book my wife had and I started reading it and this guy was talking about the art of using salt and he said this and it really struck me he said that sometimes when you prepare a dish it can be a little bland in its flavor so you uh, a good artist adds just enough salt to enhance and bring out the flavor that's the whole purpose to make the meal a little more desirable to to enhance it but if you put too much salt in it then it just tastes like salt which isn't the point of salt at all. And I realized as I read it, I thought, yeah, I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. He says, when we're living with the people around us, we have a way of sprinkling sprinkling in the love of God and the care of God and the message of God, you know, in the world around us. But we need to be careful not to just, you know, put so much on there that it starts to become all about us because that's not the purpose. In fact, Jesus says right there, so that people will see your Father. So the people will, will become, if you can, that you could create an appetite in the people around you for the things of God. Light is the same way. The light that he's talking about here doesn't change anything. It just illuminates the world around you. He gives the idea of a, of a lamp or a city on a hill. It gives light for people to know which way to go. It influences the world around them. And the point is that people will eventually be connected to their heavenly father because of the way that you live. To say that we have the potential to influence the people around us is missing the point because every one of us will. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of how. So we should point them to Jesus. That's the first myth. Here's the second myth that I want to mention, and that is the myth where people think that oikos is the best evangelism program out there. And I hear that sometimes. People are like, oh, I've seen this evangelism program and this one, but Oikos evangelism, that's a great program. And I want to just say this, that it's important that we understand that Oikos is not a program, it's a paradigm. And I want to explain that because there's a big difference between the two. A lot of people think of evangelism as a program. And what I mean by that is, it's, say it's an event. Um, it's, it's Easter or outreach services at church or an outreach event at the church or evangelism is a system for sharing Christ. When I was in high school and college, I was taught several systems for sharing Christ. You would memorize these passages and you would have to cover these points and then you would go share Christ with someone and you, you, know, you kind of had to do this thing that you were taught and then that was doing evangelism. But oikos evangelism is not a program. It's not what it is. It's more of what we would call a paradigm. Think about it this way. Uh, a program is a list of things that you do in a certain way. A paradigm is just the way that you, you see life. It's the way that you view things. It, it's been compared to a lens through which you see everything around you. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. Think of marriage. Over the years as a pastor, I've, I've kind of noticed that there's a lot of ways you can categorize marriages, but, but two of them that I've seen are sometimes you run across people who think of marriage as a program, And sometimes people think of marriage as a paradigm. And they're very, very different ways of looking at marriage. What I mean is sometimes you'll you'll see people who are married and it's kind of like they made a contract or in agreement with each other. So, you know, maybe he'll say, I take out the trash, and, um, you know, you, you, cook the, me, you cook the meals, and I pay the bills, and we go out on Friday nights, or what, whatever the arrangement would be. And, um, and sometimes um, I think about my time in terms of us, and I think about what I do in terms of us, and then sometimes it's just, it's just about me. Some decisions I make aren't made in light of us. Some of the way I spend my money isn't made in light of us. Some of the ways I spend my time, it's just about me. That that that's more of approaching a marriage as a program as opposed to a paradigm. Here's how a paradigm would be different. A paradigm is where someone says, Everything in my marriage is viewed through this through this lens. Everything. There is no non-lens. There is no just me. Every single thing in my life is about us. So when I think about my priorities, My priorities are always set in terms of this lens that involves both of us. The way I spend my time is always about us. The way I pursue relationships and spend money and make decisions, that doesn't mean I don't have some me time. That doesn't mean I don't go out and do stuff with my buddies. It doesn't mean that. It just means that the way that I come to those conclusions is always done through the lens of us, never just me. And what I've noticed over the years is those tend to lead to two very, very different kinds of marriages, when it comes to oikos, oikos isn't a program. It's, it's not an event that I do every once in a while. And I find that's, that's difficult for Christians sometimes to get over. A lot of us like to think of evangelism as a program. Evangelism is when you take the class and you memorize a system, you know. Or we like to think of evangelism as a spiritual discipline. I I pray, and that's a spiritual discipline. I read my Bible every day, and that's a spiritual discipline. I go to church once a week, or once a month, or whatever I do, and that's a spiritual discipline. And I share Christ sometimes, and that's a discipline. I do it because that's what I have to do. Some people think of it as kind of a duty, you know. I, I, I have to do it, so every now and then I just find some poor guy who looks like he's got nothing better to do. I walk up, I give him my bullet points, we have a little debate, and then I walk away feeling pretty good about myself. Because I did my duty. I did what I had to do. That's not what Jesus had in mind when he talked about sharing our faith. Oikos evangelism is is like the lens that I see my entire life through. When I see people, I don't see a duty. I don't see some kind of religious box I need to check off. I see them the way Jesus saw them. And that's totally different. When I set my goals, when I spend my time, I do it in light of the priorities of Jesus. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, he's talking to the disciples and he says this, Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And notice what he says, and you will, what's the next word? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He doesn't say you will go witnessing or you will do witnessing. He says, no, it's what you will be. It's what you are. It's, It's down to the core of your being. It's about every part of your life. So that's why we have passages like 1 Peter 2, where he says, be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. He doesn't say, you know, once a month, set aside an hour and, and share Christ with your neighbors. He says, no, be careful always about how you live among your unbelieving neighbors, even if they accuse you of doing wrong. Because right, none of you are perfect. None of you are gonna be perfect neighbors, perfect husbands, perfect children. It doesn't work that way, right? So you're gonna make mistakes. Sometimes people are going to point at you and I say, I saw what you did, or I saw how fast you were driving. He says, we understand that. No one's perfect. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, notice this. He says, something bigger is going on here. They will see your honorable behavior. They'll just see a pattern in your life. And they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. So because of your oikos, Because of the people that God has strategically placed in your world, your behavior, your life, now matters. It matters. The state of your marriage, it matters now because people are watching you. They're looking to see if Christ makes a difference in your practical everyday life. They're listening to your words more than you could possibly imagine. They're listening to everything that you say. Why? Because they love you and they care about you. And they want to know what you think. So they're listening to you. The decisions that you make, the biblical knowledge that you attain, the intercessory prayer that you invest in, all of this stuff now matters. Everything matters because people are watching you even when you think they're not. And as we talked about in the first point, whether you realize it or not, you are always, always, always influencing the people around you, even when you don't intend to. You're always influencing them, either by what you do or by what you don't do. So Jesus says, you need to understand, right, this is a paradigm. This is a, a lifestyle. It's about being prepared. In fact, you understand that, you know, at some point, the people in your oikos are gonna wanna talk to you about Christ. In 1 Peter, he says this, he says, now in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Not sometimes, or not just when you go witnessing, but always be prepared, because you never know when someone in your oikos may ask, what's the deal? Why do you believe in Jesus the way that you do? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So you know, you can invite, you can invite uh, people in your oikos to church, and statistically, uh, a lot of them will come. And if you bring them, then we're going to do our best job to present the gospel to them and love them and reach out to them. But sometimes you're going to invite people in your oikos to church and they're going to say, I don't want to go to church, but I'd have coffee with you at Starbucks and we could talk about your faith. What are you going to say when that time comes? You need to be prepared. Oikos is a paradigm. The way we live, the way we talk, the way we prioritize, the way we relate. And the third myth I want to mention is this. Some people, when they hear about oikos, uh, when they hear about this idea of the 8 to 15 and influence and all that, they think, you know, Oikos sounds kind of exclusive. Now, for some people, that's a real turnoff. And for some people, that's very exciting, you know, kind of depending on how you feel about that. But some people say, it sounds like with Oikos, I only have to witness to a very small group of people in my life. In fact, I would say this, the focus of Oikos evangelism is effectiveness, not exclusiveness. And so I hope that I can make this clear for you what I mean here, but you understand that we have a responsibility to share Christ with anyone that God brings across our path who's open to that, whether that person is in our Oikos or not, but... And this is so important. But you understand that you can only have a meaningful conversation if the other person gives you permission. It's the only way that you can do it. Now, that doesn't usually happen with strangers, does it? I mean, how often do you run into somebody you don't know and they automatically give you permission to speak into their life and influence them? It doesn't happen often. Where does it usually happen? In your oikos, with the people who know you, with the people that that you love. Now, don't get me wrong, God supernaturally gifts some people to do what we might call cold call evangelism you know that's people that can just like somebody who just goes to your door and knocks on the door and you answer the door and you've never met them before Chances are their name is Ken and they'll say to you, "Um, hey, I'm, you know, from church down the street and I just wanted to share Christ with you and that God supernaturally gives some people to do that, to go up to complete strangers, to share Christ with them and to close the deal and to lead them to Christ. Or those are the kind of people that you hear, you know, the stories like, oh yeah, how does it start? For those people, I was on a flight, uh, you know, back east, right? Isn't that how it goes? I was on a flight, and I sat next to this person that wasn't a Christian. We got in this discussion about Christ, and I led them to Christ right there. I hate those stories, because when I get on an airplane, my goal when I get to the other destination is that there's nothing in that bag when I get there. That's the only thing that I care about, you know? Like, the idea of being able to share Christ with someone next to me is, like, so far removed. Or people, you know, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I was in line at Target the other day, and I struck up this conversation with someone and before it was over we were on our knees and then the cashier was on her knees and the manager and the whole thing was cool. And you see examples of that in scripture and they're, they're great. They're, they're really exciting stories. In Acts chapter 8 it's just this, this it's the coolest story. It's about this guy named Philip and Philip is an evangelist. He has the gift of evangelism and the church is, is uh, just being, uh, it's, the foundation is being laid and, and the church is, is uh, beginning to grow and there's this guy named Philip and one day, Philip is just out you know, doing his thing and um, the, the Lord says, that, through an angel, he says to Philip, says, I want you to go down to the road down there, and I want you to start traveling along that road. That's all you get for now. So Philip was good at taking orders, so he's like, okay, I, I guess. So he goes down to Highway 14 and starts, you know, he's walking down the road, and as he's walking down the road, there are people traveling on the road, and then uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, um, there's that, see that chariot up there? Uh, go get close to it. So you kind you got to picture it, okay, because he's on foot, and there's a guy in a chariot, and he's going down the road. So Philip's got to kind of nonchalantly, like, he, you know, he's got to go down the road and get, he's, he's, he's running next to the chariot. And as he's going down, the, in this chariot is a, uh, an Ethiopian, and uh, he's an official, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He's a God seeker, and now he's traveling back, I guess, and he's reading out of the Bible. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. And back then, when you read, you would read out loud. So he's reading, and he's reading out loud, and, and Philip is re- trying to... And nonchalantly if you're running next and he can hear what the guy's reading. And so he, he like looks up and he says, hey, what are you reading there? And the guy's like, oh, I'm reading from one of the prophets. And Philip says, you know, because he, he gets it now. He understands what's going on. And so he says to the guy, well, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, I, how could I understand it unless someone explains to, to me? So he, you know, jumps on the chariot and catches his breath. And, and then it, he begins to explain the passage. He just sees this opportunity and he dives in. In fact, it explains it to us. It says, and Philip began with that very passage of scripture that the guy had been reading and told him the good news about Jesus as he traveled along the road. And they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. These situations just seem to happen to certain people because that's the way that God has gifted them. But it's not the way most people come to Christ. I've shared with you my story before, but again, my story feels like one of those cold-calling situations. I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I, no one in my family were, were believers. And uh, to kind of make the story short, I, there was a guy who was in my dad's oikos who was trying to share Christ with him. And he gave my dad a book to read, uh, and it had the gospel message in it. Uh, but my dad didn't want to read it so he came home and he said I don't want to read it maybe you want to read it and so I opened I cracked open this book that was given to you know for my dad through a friend so there's real no connection just this reading this book by this guy I don't know and halfway through the book the Holy Spirit convicts me and I give my life to Jesus Christ I still don't even know who the guy was that gave the book to my dad who gave the book to me I don't know and it makes for a great story when I tell all the details and all that stuff it's really cool it's cool and cold call evangelism stories can be really exciting and really fun to share about but they're rarely successful because people seldom grant that kind of permission to people they don't know in fact how many of you and we did this three weeks ago but it's always interesting how many of you would say i pretty much came to christ through a cold call evangelism kind of situation anyone besides me okay i see a hand a couple hands not very many why is that well we understand why because you, very, you rarely give permission to somebody that you don't know. Most people come to Christ through an oikos kind of relationship. In fact, it's been called the most boring testimony ever written, but in Second Timothy 1.5, Paul's writing to this guy, and he, he says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, doesn't that sound sweet, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. It's kind of boring. There are no drugs. There's no rock and roll. There's nothing, you know, just kind of like, yeah, and your grandmother, and then your mother, and now there's you. And it sounds kind of boring, but the reality is that's how about 90% of people come to Christ. Through a parent, a sibling, a friend, a coworker. How many of you would say that describes you? It was an cost relationship that brought you to Christ. There you go. And that's typically the way that it works. See, oikos evangelism isn't about exclusiveness. It's just about recognizing your best opportunity. When you think about the limited days that you walk on this earth, the limited time, limited resources that you have, you understand that the place where you are most likely to be successful in sharing your faith is with the people that you have loving, caring relationships with. So don't miss those opportunities to share your faith with your oikos. You know, as we've thought about evangelism as a church, and we've had a lot of discussions about it, it's very, very important to us. But one of the realizations we've come to is that oikos evangelism will not grow a church as quick as some really cool programs will. And I think a lot of churches have found that. because Programs, you know, they can be really impressive. And, but, but here's one of the things that I've found over the years about church programs Church programs tend to impress church people more than they do unchurch people. And what you tend to end up with is a lot of what you a lot of what you see today. Churches decide we want to grow, so we're going to try some really cool new program to be people to bring people in. You know, and it could be a, an event, it could be a program, it could a, a band, it could be a better preacher. I mean, you know, to get that stuff. But what ends up happening most of the time is people just shift from one church to the next. They just move from one church to the next and, you know, just, oh, that church has got the happening thing. That church has got the happening thing. That's pretty cool. There's really no net benefit to the kingdom of God. We just kind of move from church to church. And I think one of the things as a, as a church that we would really say is we, we would rather see the people that we bring into our church be people who have been brought into the kingdom of God through relationships in our church. We would like to see our church grow because there's a net benefit to the kingdom of God. In other words, it's not just about adding bodies to our service, but adding souls to the kingdom of God. But that only happens if every one of us as individuals decide to take hold of that, to take responsibility for that, to realize that every one of us have an oikos and a God-given unique opportunity to make a difference in the world through that so I want to ask you as we stand I want to remind you about a couple things as we close here first of all if you have not uh, got your hands on this book yet get one on the way out read it it's an easy read but I think it will really enhance what we've been talking about Second of all, for those of you who are in grow groups, want to encourage you to be sure to read your material this week and be prepared as you get together to talk about this. It'll be a chance for you to talk about where you are, to pray for your oikos and to support one another. And lastly, uh, if you've been here, you've probably gotten one of these cards, but if you've not got an oikos card yet, prayer card, also be sure to grab one on your way out at uh, the information center. Uh, it's just a card where you can write down the names of the people in your oikos who are unchurched and begin to pray for them. And in fact, I'm going to ask you as we close today to consider doing this. We don't do stuff like this often, but if you're willing to make a commitment, and here's the commitment I would ask you to make. If you'd be willing for the next 30 days to say, I'm going to write down on a card the names of the unchurched in my oikos, and I'll write those names down, and I'll put them somewhere, I'll see them daily, and I'll commit myself to praying every day for the next 30 days for a couple things, to pray for those people in your oikos, just to lift them up to God, just to ask God to open up their heart and their mind. And if you would pray for yourself, that God would give you an opportunity to share Christ with them sometime in the next 30 days, that you would pray for those two things. If you would be willing to do that, I'm going to ask you if you'll just stand up, because I want to take a moment to pray for you. So again, we don't do this often, but if you're willing to make that commitment, would you just stand up where you are? If you're willing to make a commitment to pray for the people in your oikos and for yourself for the next 30 days, would you stand up and let me pray for you?